Hey everybody, we're starting the room early. Um, we'll be streaming from Twitter spaces at nine. So stay tuned. I gotta tell you, we've been doing this show for for me for a couple months in February, and everybody involved in the show has their favorites so far. Our executive or our, our producer, Ivana, loves you. He kept talking to me like, "Oh, we gotta get Don McCartney on," and I saw him in this, 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 and this. So you've got a huge fan there. Oh, that's awesome! I appreciate support so much. I really, really do. We try to start off every show, kind of giving people a chance, especially people with you know a list of accomplishments, uh, to define themselves because society is always trying to define. So when someone asks you that, how do you define your career and your success? Um, I, 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 I'm just very fortunate. Extremely fortunate and grateful that uh, I am a working actor. Um, I did work hard at it, and I have been working hard, hard at it for the last 30 years. And... Um, you know, it's, it's just a, a wonderful time in um, for native representation in, in film and television right now. It's a unique time that we're finally getting, uh, having a little bit of control over our stories and our narrative and the opportunity to, to tell our stories and for people to see us. So I started off uh, when there wasn't very many jobs available for native talent and finally these doors slowly have been opening up a little bit, little bit, you know, each year for us. And again, it's just, they finally have opened up so you can kind of peek your head out. I think we have a, a ways to go yet, but uh, I'm very grateful and fortunate that I'm, I'm living in a time where, um, you know, those doors are open. You've been doing it for, you know, for 30 years and had roles for significant periods of time. Uh, you say that it's a great time right now. How has it been watching it change? Like in the middle of it, did you see that progress or was it frustrating along the way? Um, I started off in the early 90s as an actor and moved out here. And from that point until now, a lot of things have changed globally over the last 30 years now. The only opportunities that we had as, as a business uh, actors were yep. you know, riding horses and yipping and yelling. I can't get the soundboard on my phone. stereotypical tropes that were written for us. Um, and it's just wonderful to see uh, that we're finally getting are going to open up the room at nine o'clock. Everyone's over on Twitter spaces, but we're still figuring things out. Y'all, so thank you for being patient with us. Um, to, to share with 
share my, my experiences, my strengths, uh, my hopes, and just to represent uh, my community in a positive way is important. I, I take that up. You know? um, I mean, I'm obviously on television, and uh, my face is seen a lot by, by the community. Jason, well, um, do I want to share the body and have, you know, we're using the bottom right link, so when you're on that page, it'll, it'll say, um, it'll give you options to share it, and the top option should be this room, and it'll say, you got this in the opinion show, and you're going to click that. Yes, Troy, things have changed quite a bit. Uh, we have been experimenting with Twitter spaces, but we found out today that we, we found out that we can't use our soundboard. You can't do Twitter spaces on a desktop. So we're looking at Discord. We're looking at lots of different options. But right now we are on Twitter Spaces restreaming onto Clubhouse. There you go. Check, 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 check. Yep, I hear you. All right. Rico, you're not, you have to accept the invitation to speak on Clubhouse. I have to do. Thank you. 
get started, Jason. Let's run to the script, baby. Yes, sir. That's right. Uh, yeah. I thought Susan was going to read this. Susan's not reading this. I'm gonna, Susan, are you back with us or is, is your back not with us? I'm back, not any of the above. Jason's on you. All right, give me one second, and I will hit this all up for you guys.
Whatnot, but as far as um, regulating the business, that needs to be a separate side agency. Well, and I'm and I'm fine with as someone if it's you know HHS or whoever you want to set a standard. That's fine, but there has to be someone there to actually then go in and police this shit because these rogue labs is just a fucking nightmare, and this a this industry is never going to move forward that way. I agree with you on that part. Anna, did you have something? Yes. Hi. I wanted to say 80% of the testing is bullshit, and we all know that. And throwing Keith on something does not add to the THC. That's it. Ooh, throwing Keith on shit. <laughs> you want to elaborate a little bit on that, Anna? Do I? No, I'm <laughs> cool. Just, that's it. <laughs> Just drop some Keith on it. <laughs> 
say there's some methods of sampling that people are probably aware of, but like you can actually take from the center of the sample and usually you get a higher THC percentage. And also, um, some, there's all these different SOPs, so some lab picks do like a triple extraction to get all the THC out. So I think the challenge is there's actually no standardization, so. I agree with you, Liz. There needs to be some sort of standardization for this. Yeah, you got to standardize shit, especially as, as, as more and more states open up. Like, who are they going to be looking for as a benchmark? You know, for any of these testing standards, for any of these numbers, you need some sort of uh, standardization. And um, sorry, Jason, I, I, I'm just reading between the lines here, man. I, I do not see anything other than, you know, the DEA uh, um, expanding its reach beyond hemp into the THC market sooner rather than later. And they're already setting up the infrastructure for that. So, so Tony, uh, real quick here because we are short on time. Um, as a representative of the, uh, the, the 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 testing industry, what would you think a good solution would be? Because we're going to need some sort of standards set on a federal level if we're moving into the land of federal legalization. Yeah. So, so my my thought on that is this: that the state regulators they just need to enforce these things. So, like we've participated in like tons of these things. I'll just I'll make it quicker where. We've pulled samples off shelves like flour, right? Like a hundred samples, tested them, and like eighty percent of the label claims are just totally false. Like this flower could say forty, it could say fifty, whatever. We could test it and it comes back at like twenty-two percent total THC. And we see this over and over and over. And the thing is, we have sent that data over and over to the DCC, like for years. We sent it to them. They know. They have the batch IDs. They have the UIDs. They could say who tested it. They know that. They could say who made it. They could say who sold it. And we've sent it to them. And they don't do anything. And I think that, that that's what they need to do is they need to actually take that information and come up with some sort of way to be able to decide if that's – is that accurate or not, right? Like – and that's the thing. They just Tony, need to gotta wrap it up. That's it. They just need to come up with some level of enforcement, you know. Enforcement for the win, says Tony. Well, um, I, I see nothing but uh, turbulence ahead for the testing market. It'll be very, very interesting to see how the federal government handles it, be it that uh, the largest uh, state in the nation, in the industry, can't get their shit together either. So looks like the trap will survive yet another day. <laughs> Up next, he's the longest continuously operating retailer in the world with the affinity for the best weed and identification and eradication of booth galaxy wide. The industry's very own Kaiser Brose is also known in Detroit as White Gucci, London as the booth free bloke. 
and here in uh, West Hollywood as El Presidente. Jason Beck, what do you have for us this beautiful Tuesday morning? including the fact that there are 209 million global customer users. Cannabis is still the most used drug in the world, and the COVID lockdowns only helped the drug become more popular. Legalization in the U.S. has also accelerated uh, adoption and use of drug, according to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime 2022 World Drug Report. The group's first annual report is what it calls a post-pandemic world. The UNODC research has shown that prescriptions of cannabis harm or perceptions of cannabis harms have decreased in areas where the drug has been legalized. Gondo Bali, the UNODC executive director, said. But at the time, uh, but at the same time, the, the firm says that about 40% of countries reported cannabis as the drug related to the greatest number of drug use disorders. However, as the cannabis as cannabis is the most prevalent substance in most countries, it can cause a relatively high number of drug use disorders and related treatment requests, even though it has a relatively lower potential to create dependency, the report said. Overall, there were 209 million cannabis users in 2020, but less than a third of the people who use cannabis were women. Women represented 42% of smokers in North America and 34% of smokers in West and Central Europe. While, while opioid use remained largely stable during the pandemic, global cannabis and amphetamine use jumped since 2020. Trends for cocaine and ecstasy uh, reversed and going lower since the pandemic, according to the report. Well, that's probably because everyone's on lockdown and there were no raves. And while people are consuming more cannabis, none of the countries reported data showing an increase in the number of new persons using drugs, which the report attributes to the fact that there was a reduction in face-to-face -face social interaction. Well, I have all kinds of thoughts about this article, but I really want to hear what you guys all have to say. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. What are your thoughts, Jason? <laughs> Give us the lowdown. 209 million global users. I think that number is far, far, far below what the actual number is. Absolutely. Normalize it, right? Yes, indeed. We have, a, we have like too many people still in that green closet, not willing to say what they're doing. Did like the fact of this article, the fact that it does um, it, it does state that in, uh, in in states or areas where cannabis has been uh, been legalized, normalized, legitimized, or whatnot, that the faux pas of cannabis and the stigmas around it are starting to lessen. And so I viewed that as a major positive overall. Yeah, the numbers are trending in the right direction. I think it'll be. Do you think there's there's more people that are not saying anything in the U.S. or you think this is just like overall uh, globally there's a lot more uh, users that it just just won't say that they are. I think there's way more global users and there's a number of people that are worried about the stigma and maybe even possibly the laws in their country before they admit to using cannabis. Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100 percent on that. I mean, just like on my story that I was uh, reading yesterday with that um, um the judge over in London saying that she hasn't seen any, she's not really seeing any cases come through where people haven't been caught with cannabis on their, <laughs> on their person. Right. So like you have all of these countries where it is illegal and we know, I mean, like there are methods of getting uh, cannabis out of the United States and, and not <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> so, I mean, if 80% of the product in america is underground is illegal is illicit just think about what, how much of that is globally and how many people are just keeping their mouths shut and staying behind closed doors right that's a great point i mean it's like huge score one for the green team yes indeed the trap is immortal that it is 
Liz, are, are you? Do you want to go up next? I hit you up in Slack. Whoa, 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 whoa! I, I already have an order going on over here, bro. But we were supposed to push Liz to the top from yesterday because she pushed her story. Remember, baby? Well, well, mm-hmm. I, have, I, have, I have Lara up next. Why don't you introduce Lara? It hit me in the back it's channel, Liz. Ass. Cannabis Bar Association, current chair of the Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Section, and founder of the San Francisco Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project, and the organic source for the silkiest, smoothest vocal cords in the Western Hemisphere. Truly amazing. Coming up next is none other than Laura <laughs> Thanks, Jason. You guys are awesome. Sorry, Liz. Um, it actually, though, is a good segue into this story that I'm covering today, which is a continuation on the Brittany Griner um, uh, situation. And it's former Governor Bill Richardson to travel to Moscow for talks on freeing Brittany Griner. It's by Patrick Ravalsh for ABC News. That's my link. I'm sure you've seen it all over the news. Hopefully, at this point, we're keeping it in the limelight. This is an important story. We need to keep her name out there and to keep a spotlight on the administration and how they're dealing with this story. So this story starts out, you know, that uh, former um, UN ambassador, um, I'm sorry, Bill Richardson, has been asked to uh, assist with the shell diplomacy that is taking place um, with regard to between the United States and Russia and brokering a deal to free Brittany. So as the calls are going louder to free Brittany Griner, the White House actually has agreed to discuss with Bill um, uh, different ways that we might be able to broker a deal. It's a really interesting situation. If you don't know Bill Richardson's history, he was the governor of uh, New Mexico, one of the states I grew up in. He was also um, a, a UN uh, advisor. He, he was our energy secretary at one point during the Clinton administration. He did a ton of good work brokering uh, deals with North Korea back in the day um, and, and getting Americans out of very dangerous situations back there in the 90s. He really established himself as one of the key negotiators. So according to this article, Richardson is planning to travel to Russia quote, in the near future for talks aimed at finding a deal to free the detained WNBA star Brittany Griner. He's expected to go to Moscow in the next couple of weeks, according to an anonymous source for this author. Um, and it, the, the author goes on to say that Russia has repeatedly suggested it is interested in trading Griner for Russians held in U.S. prisons, including an arms dealer named Victor Bout, quote-unquote, the merchant of death, who is serving 25 years here in the United States for narco-terrorism crimes. Richardson's office apparently did not confirm or deny the, the relationship, but the, the, he does confirm that he is currently representing the Griner family, as well as the family of Paul Whelan, uh, a, a former Marine held by Russia for three and a half years. Uh, in case you missed it, earlier this week, Reiner pled guilty to drug charges, saying she had not meant to leave them in her bag and, as we just were discussing, brought them in to a prohibited jurisdiction accidentally. It's important to note that even though cannabis possession is unlawful in Russia, the Biden administration is still classifying her as wrongfully detained. Um, and that's possibly because the Russians are just using her as a bargaining chip. Um, but it is an important policy signal, right, that we are saying, even though she admitted to violating the drug policy of the foreign jurisdiction, they believe that she's being wrongfully detained by that jurisdiction. But one of the reasons that I think that this case is so important to keep in the spotlight is because Ms. Griner is gay, which is not protected in Russia, but in any way, shape, or form. And another reason, as a, as a Black female, she, this has been resulting in far less coverage for her over her rather melatonin-challenged counterparts who tend to get a lot of airtime. Greiner's wife, Sherelle Greiner, said that she had requested Mr. Richardson's team help and would support that if the trip took place. So we're, we're hoping that this is moving forward. And through it's his nonprofit, I wanted to point out that he's helped um, a ton of U.S. citizens imprisoned in many countries returned to the United States. But keep in mind that those deals were, they took months and months and months to complete. It's a lot of work. It's shuttle diplomacy. So he's essentially brokering the deal between the governments. He's not working for the government. We'll see what good he can do. Let's keep us in the spotlight. Let's break Brittany home. My name is Laura DeCaro, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Free Brittany G.
any thoughts on that, or are we just? Well, Laura, frankly, I agree with you that Britney's not getting any press, and all the white guys have. Um, until Britney showed up, who remembered about Paul Whelan, who's been sitting there for the past three and a half years um, and continues to sit there. So I think Britney is getting a lot more press, um, and I don't think she's being forgotten whatsoever. I think I th- that's being debated. Yeah, I, 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 I would disagree with that um, um, partially, um, um, uh, Gretchen. I think uh, she should have had a lot more press because she's a public figure. Uh, the people who um, um, are, are being detained over there who are not being publicized, they're not public figures. It just is what it is. Brittany Griner is, was a superstar, period. She wasn't just like a WNBA player. She's a fucking superstar, one of the greatest to ever play, period, dunking on people in games and shit. So the fact that she w- was detained and that she's super duper high profile, and that's the way America works on marketing. Like People care about you because you're visible. And not so much about your your accolades. If if you're not being visible, like on a daily basis, she was. So that I think that's where the outcry is because there's been so much press on her. I'm um, not being in. I guess like any negative Russian news or whatever. And then all of a sudden you're just silenced on somebody, and the WNBA season starts, and you're not and you're not allowed to talk about her. So that's why there's a huge uproar about it, um, as opposed to the other folks that have been wrongfully de- detained over there. Okay, because she's an athlete, we should care a lot more about her. That's what you're saying. I didn't say that. I said that's what America does. Don't put words in my mouth. I said no, I that's think, that's why it matters more. I think I think Richard's making a good point. You know, but what, what what has happened is that we're we're now trying to focus on her and her story and keeping that story in the press very actively. And um, you know, but that took a push. That was not the way that it originally started. So I think that you know there have been developments um, in more recent weeks to keep her name in the press and to keep a spotlight on the situation. So I agree. I mean, with Gretchen in some degree. I wanted to jump up because, well, I, I think it's important that we keep talking about her. I think if it's for a man, NBA player, we wouldn't even have had to do the push. And that's important to say again. And, but the other, to Laura's point, I was curious because I read somewhere that the law actually in Russia for the same amount that she's in possession is like part of the reason they might be claiming Biden or the U.S. might be claiming that she's wrongfully detained is because what they're charging her with is way more than a Russian who's in Russia would have with the same amount. Um, so I'm wondering if maybe that's why that's maybe like the Biden. Well, well, technically they're applying the law differently or I don't know. I think, I think what the reason, and they have not said why, I think the reason why the U.S. is saying that she's wrongfully detained more has to do with political gamesmanship with the war with Ukraine. I think that is there. No, for sure. That's the obvious. I was just wondering. Yeah. yeah. I agree with, I agree, I agree with you there, Gretchen. Yes. I'm just wondering. I'm like, the no, most looking for, you know. Say it again. Go ahead, Victoria. No, no, no. Gretchen, I cut you off. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I'm, I'm simply saying, I think that's... The, Frankly, the Fed's position is just because of, of the Ukraine. I think that's why they're saying she's wrongfully detained. I don't think it has a thing to do with um, the actual cannabis laws over in Russia. Yeah, I think I think that's right too. This is the like I'll say it a million times. This is the fog of war, and it's all speculation on our end. We I don't think we'll ever know like the full extent of this story until five, ten years later, if and when she gets out. So. Yes. Who's going to make the movie? I'm just wondering if when she does get out, because I know previously to her ever being detained or whatnot, she was pretty outspoken about her hate for America and whatnot. And so I'm just wondering. (laughs) Oh, my God. She's going to be an Olympic team. Oh, my God. She wants to play for the United States. Yeah, no, dude. Yeah, you're just saying. I hope she loves America. There's no... There's no facts in that statement no <laughs> at all. Who got this? Let's, what the hell are we doing? Oh, we need to gaslight. Oh, yeah. Gaslight. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Uh.
Thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Canada's News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Canada's or its members. The statements made in the State of Canada's News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Canada's and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Canada's News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Canada's or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Canada's or any speaker. Let's keep smoking the news. Up next, she splits her days and nights between political strategy and baking delicious treats. But you best believe our next correspondent is a full-time feisty red-headed conservative with claimed Mayflower roots, <laughs> deep love and affection for safe banking. Up next, the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us? Uh, good afternoon, Rico. My headline is about the love of my life, safe banking. Uh, the headline is Pennsylvania Governor Signs Marijuana Banking and Insurance Reform Bill into Law. Uh, the governor of Pennsylvania on Monday signed a bill that includes provisions to protect banks and insurers in the state that work with licensed medical marijuana businesses. Pro-legalization Governor Tom Wolf approved the measure sent to his desk by the Republican-controlled legislature, which mirrors the standalone bill that previously advanced before being attached to a separate measure. As a standalone measure, the cannabis banking reform passed the Senate earlier this year, and it also cleared a House committee last month. But the chief sponsor, uh, Senator John DeSanto, then filed it as an amendment to now sign House Bill 311, which deals with authorizing certain financial institutions to conduct savings promotion programs. The Pennsylvania cannabis legislation is another example of how states are working to provide protections to financial institutions that are willing to service the cannabis market as Congress continues to stall on the federal fix. The amendment included in this enacted measure will not immunize banks and insurers from potential federal repercussions, but it represents an interim step meant to signal to the financial sector that they at least won't face penalties under state law. If it states that a financial institution authorized to engage in business in the Commonwealth may provide financial services to or for the benefit of a legitimate cannabis-related business and the business associates of a legitimate cannabis-related business. Uh, the same protections will also be codified for insurers. However, it also specifies that the law will not require banks or insurers to provide services to medical marijuana businesses. The legislation says that the state government agencies cannot prohibit, penalize, or otherwise discourage a financial institution or insurer from providing financial or insurance services to a legitimate cannabis-related business or the business associates of a legitimate cannabis-related business. It also says agencies cannot recommend, incentivize, or encourage a financial institution or insurer to not provide insurers just not to provide services just because a business is associated with marijuana. Further, state agencies cannot take adverse or corrective super, supervisory action on a loan made to a legitimate cannabis-related business. The House introduced its own version of the marijuana banking bill in April that also included tax relief provisions for the industry that were removed from the Senate measure uh, prior to passage. Uh, prior to passage. Um, I applaud Tom Wolf for doing something for cannabis because he hasn't been able to pull off much else. Um, but this is just another example of how um, states are trying to provide services for the industry um, since the feds can't seem to get their shit together. Um, so for State of Cannabis News Hour, pass safe banking. Fuck safe banking. Fuck safe banking. Anybody looking to get a, a license is going to be pushed out of the conversation and pushed to the back of the line too, Jason. And I'm saying it on multiple levels because it's not helping. How does bank? How does banking in mainstream America help out Black Americans right now? When we get pushed out of loans, we get pushed out of any kind of talks of getting bank accounts like already and business accounts already. How is that going to help us? Bullshit. Bullshit. I would like to ask um, the fellow panelists and listeners out there, do they think that states should be taking this action or is this just going to be a pain in the ass when some legalization does happen? Um, should they be moving forward like this? I would, I would like to I would like to ask people who are actual social equity applicants, not the actual license holders, is safe banking on the top of your list or is it righting the wrongs of the war on drugs? Which is more important? I, I, I believe my question was asked first. 
But your but, but yours yours is gonna be a blanket question that's gonna be skewed results from the beginning. But before you even get to, yeah, but if, if you before you even get to that point down the road, you need to right the wrongs of the war on drugs, and you need to get these people in a position to actually even get a license before you can think about safe banking. Am I right on that track, Roz? I think, I, I, I think there's opportunity. I, I think Rico, you're 100 percent that we need to rewrite and, and repair the harm on the war on drugs. But the thing about again, when you talk about um, you know, repaired some of the harms, but the economic, the story is, is that from an economic perspective, if you get people released from, from jail and they don't have any real opportunity to pursue because there's not any type of systems in place to be able to make it real and tangible, you're releasing them to poverty. Poverty sucks. Like I want to release, but I want to release you to opportunity and things that make sense and that can maybe, and have barriers broken down so that you don't have to struggle as hard. And to be honest with you, Equity is, I mean, I'm sorry, banking is a business perspective that we can, we should not have an industry that's making millions and billions of dollars with no, um, you know, codified um, type of support for banking. It just doesn't make sense. 100%. Roz, can I just, I just want to add something to this because this, this is like a really bad game of Maybe I could explain it this way. It's like, this is a game of poker. And if we give up the ace, which is this, everybody wants banking. We all want, it. but here's the deal. If we're fighting the millionaires, right? The people like Roz are having to fend off millionaires. When Wells Fargo and Chase are in the game, they're going to flood the zone. And people like you aren't going to exist anymore because you're going to, instead of the millionaires, it's the billionaire class we'll be dealing with. And social equity will be swept off the table. It won't even be a consideration. The only way that stays on the table is through these discussions and things like the Moore Act. If once the billionaire class comes in, social equity, why would they do the right thing? They've never done the right thing. They're not doing the right thing now, as Rico points out in Communities of Color. They ain't doing the right thing now. What makes you think they're going to do it when they get safe banking? They ain't. They never do. And that's the issue. Give us something like the Moore Act that has both and we can all be happy. That's so simple, but Republicans refuse to do the right thing. Half of them in the House won't even vote for safe banking. They don't. So it's not like Republicans are waiting to do the right thing. They ain't enough. There's only nine in the Senate. So why, I, this is like a, just an insane argument you guys are making. I, I don't Republicans won't vote for faith because they did vote for safe in the House. But I think another most of them did not. It was 106, 101. They did not. It doesn't matter how many. We had enough to pass the 118 threshold. But the majority didn't. The bat. The majority did not. And the majority of Democrats did vote that. We didn't need a majority to do it, though, Eric. I think. I think another issue that I think that is huge that almost did that is just becoming a footnote footnote in this story is that they're also uh, telling people to provide insurance. Um, insurance, I think, is going to be a game changer for a lot of these folks. I know a lot of people who, you know, a few years ago in California lost their crop uh, to fires, and they're like, we're fucked because we don't have insurance. So I love that insurance has been added to this. I don't think it's all just about the banking. We need to look at all aspects of this. And I think we could talk on this for the whole entire fucking hour. Um, I think we should keep moving, but that's just me. I'm with you, Gretchen. We're going to keep it moving. That's been an excellent discussion, everyone. Thank you all so much for your input. And he's an award-winning journalist with a multicultural background in mid-generation California, known as a breeding fighting farmer's friend. This writer, brand consultant, event promoter, and content ninja does it all in the name of uncovering the international truths the lamestream media does not want you to see. Coming up next, 
is none other than Eric. Thank you, Jason. Um, here's something I'd much rather talk about, which is uh, cannabis science and cool flavonoids and things. So um, this headline is called What the F are Flavonoids? It's from the Beard Brothers blog. And I'm going to jump right in. When it comes to cannabis, you may be familiar with dominant cannabinoids like CBD and THC. You might even be hip to the benefits of terpenes and the effects they have not only on the aromas and flavors of your favorite cultivars, but the effects they can have on your well-being too. But what do you know about flavonoids? If your answer is what w, WTF is flavonoid, you're not alone. So let's dig deeper into this relatively unknown aspect of the entourage effect. Flavonoids are natural substances known as secondary metabolites found in fruits, vegetables, grains, bark, roots, stems, flowers, tea, and wine. Much like cannabinoids and terpenes, flavonoids are well known for the beneficial effects on health and efforts are being made to isolate them and research, research them further. Flavonoids work in harmony with terpenes to deliver the unmistakable unmistakable aromas and flavors of your favorite flowers, fruits, veggies, and of course, weed. Rooted in the Latin word flavus, meaning blonde or yellow, flavonoids are also responsible for providing the vibrant colors found in many flowering plants like cannabis. Still, little is known about them, but what we do know is that there are at least 8,000 varieties of flavonoids with six main types found in common food and plants. I'm not going to go through all the lists here, but um, here's a couple notables. Flavanols are revered for their antioxidant properties and have been shown to help manage cardiovascular complications. They're most commonly found in onions, kale, grapes, and, and wine, of course, tea berries, and tomatoes. And my personal fave, anthocyanins. Um, these tend to give flowers their red, blue, and purple coloration and can be found in abundance in the skin of certain berries. Uh, like blueberries, strawberries, and blackberries. And of course, this is what gives our beloved perps the purple color. Um, at least 20 different flavonoids have been detected in various cannabis cultivars. Even more curious, the cannabis plant has exclusive flavonoids you won't find in the grocery store. In fact, uh, cannabis plants contain several unique flavonoids known as canflavins that cannot be found anywhere else in nature as far as we know. When consumed with cannabinoids and terpenes, Flavonoids flood the chemical receptors through your body's endocannabinoid system. Taken into the body in these natural ratios, these constituents of the cannabis plant deliver the so-called entourage effect that not only makes family guy funnier, but can also act as anti-inflammatories, antioxidants, and antibacterials contributing to a higher quality of life. Uh, every bud from every harvest of every phenotype of every cultivar can potentially express slight variances in the ratio and types of cannabinoids, flavonoids, and terpenes, which is why certain strains grown certain ways by certain growers literally hit different. The truth of the matter is that the best ways of consuming the highest levels of these metabolites are likely through properly prepared edibles and tinctures, as the high heat and combustion associated with smoking could be annihilating flavonoids before you can inhale them. The anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, anti-cancer, and neuroprotective benefits of flavonoids and canflavins are highly reminiscent of the wellness benefits provided by the more widely accepted or, or excuse me, appreciated uh, cannabinoids and terpenes. The latter two are prominently displayed in brand marketing and on product packaging, while barely perceptible, but highly influential, influential flavonoids still get little or no love. That is changing, however, slowly as forward-thinking cannabis lab testing facilities that's interesting that comes up today, uh, are leading the way in flavonoid detection for their clients operating in the consumer marketplace, while actual research labs still butt up against federal cannabis prohibition and subpar nugs as test subjects. So what the F is a flavonoid? Flavonoids might be the future. And I'm going to close by saying I really agree. Um, I think our, as our industry and market matures, some folks, probably the majority of the market, are going to be content with subpar monocropped corporate McWeed. How other, other folks, a small percentage, a smaller percentage, um, the same people who buy cult wines, craft beer, small batch distilled spirits and organic foods will offer unique strains and expressions cloning cream in clean, organic, natural environments. And they'll be happily pay a premium for it. I do. And that's what I got for today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up.
Eric, thank you for dropping so many gems on flavonoids this morning. And I think the key to everything you said was at the end there, you're able to offer a premium when you learn these things and you start teaching people the uh, the terpene profiles, the flavonoids and all the different uh, uh, all the different compounds within the plant. I know a ton of people, the majority of the market just want to have some weed that'll get you high, but going the extra mile there is going to be able to increase your revenue at the end of the day if you get the information out there correctly and i love having our team because we can get such good information like this out to the masses thank you thanks for this article eric i think this is a key point of cannabis that's still you know just being seen like you said here and one cool thing is flavonoids are partially water soluble so you can they can be a little more bioavailable in foods and i think the one thing you hit on that's really important here is nutrition and the whole part of the cannabis plant has so many parts more parts obviously we know than just thc and even just the terpenes and inhalation of it so these have a lot more medicinal properties and i hope that we can see a lot more of these products like whole plant tinctures that can really capture those flavonoids because everybody knows those dark fruits and vegetables are so much better for you. Let's keep smoking the news. This is an excellent story. Thank you so much, Eric. All right. So up next, this educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant, and founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County enjoys her fresh morning data drip drama free. So cut the crap before it crowns. But also... She, Medic, and the rest of the team did a phenomenal job while Susan was out, and we're so happy to have her with the next story. What you got for us today, Liz Rogan? Thank you, Rico, and uh, I'm just going to continue the science trend. So, greetings, everyone. Happy Tuesday, and thank you for joining us today. My story comes from Cannabis Business Times by Adriana Rusciuto. The headline reads, Biodetection Canine Partners with Purdue University to Train Canines to Detect Diseases in Cannabis and Hemp. So the article focuses on using canines to detect agricultural diseases to allow growers earlier detection, allowing them more options to manage the problem. So Columbus, Ohio-based Biodetection Canine, which is BDK9, offers canine and technology-based services to detect viruses and pathogens in humans and agricultural settings. They recently partnered with Purdue University to develop processes to train canines to detect diseases in hemp and cannabis. William Schneider, who's the chief science officer at BDK9, says the initial purpose was to train canines to detect tree and other agricultural crop diseases, such as citrus canker, plum pox virus, and four separate viral diseases in tomatoes. The company also used tra trained canines to screen humans for COVID-19. Canine detection is somewhat pricey in terms of per plant diagnostics. So the focus is on crops where the individual plant value is high. So naturally, cannabis came up. Janet Beckerman, who's a PhD professor of plant pathology at Department of Botany at Purdue, um, had previous work studying diseases in cannabis plants. And so the company decided to partner with the university to advance these processes further. Um, John Couture, who's a PhD agricultural researcher at Pete Purdue comes in because he already had experience doing images on pest imaging on insect pests in plants. So one of the biggest problems with managing plant diseases by the time you diagnose the problem, you see the symptoms, it's too late and the problem is really already there, especially with viral diseases. That early detection can save thousands of dollars and allow growers more options. So right now they're specifically training these canines to detect botrytis and they work with plants at all growth cycles, at ages of the growth cycle. So it's kind of neat. They use this technology with the canines. They use drones and satellite imagery over a field, um, and the canines are then sent to specific areas to identify the diseased plants. So basically, the canine runs along a row of plants at about one second per plant until it finds a positive, at which point it's trained to sit there, and the handler will check to make sure it's not trying to mess around, Snyder says. And when we're all convinced the dog's not lying to us, the dog's rewarded with a toy and a little bit of playtime. Then the toy dog gives the toy back and eventually we start up again and head down the row. So the dogs do get tired, especially for large anchor grows. So they fly drones and satellite imagery over the field beforehand to highlight the infected areas. So this can help increase the efficacy of the dog's ability to hone in on these spots. So basically what they do is they take the drone signature and look at that they can tell that the way the light reflects off plants is called optical signatures and in early stages optical signatures basically are changing they can look at that so they're overall looking at the changes in that 
um, with the drones and satellite imagery, and then they send the dogs in to basically get the specific plant. Cool thing too is the dogs can sample an entire plant without destroying it, and it gives the growers results in real time. Because basically, if you're looking at a molecular test in a lab, you're often subsampling the plant, so you're not doing the entire plant. You could have a diseased plant if you take a leaf that isn't infected. So basically, this is a lot more powerful. These dogs' noses are more powerful in some ways than our labs are. So the first set of dogs is almost ready to go, and they're going to a grow in Jamaica because they have specific problems with mold there because of the climate. And projects typically require two dogs and one handler. Depends on the density of plants, though. So they're excited because working with Purdue, they're able to uh, expand their expertise looking at different diseases, aside from Boitritis, because different geographical regions have different problems. So it's really based on the location. Next thing we're looking at is Pythium. Uh, it's a, fungal, a fungus that causes root rot. So they say that's a big problem in certain operations. And they envision having a dog core that could be deployed to locations all over. Um, they anticipate a commercial product that's available by the end of the year. And this story really turned on my can of science biologist brain. I love how amazing canine noses are in detecting diseases like cancer and COVID. And now the same canine noses and technology come together for smarter pest and disease identification. This can save huge amounts of money and resources and allow for more immediate intervention. Though it is costly and it's likely only be affordable for larger operators. So it will provide more jobs for people and for the dogs. And hey, you get to take your dog to work. Um, I am curious if the dogs could bring in any problems like with pests or diseases, because I do remember dogs not supposed to be in certain grow areas. But seriously, this is really happening. So what do you guys all think? This is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I know we're pressed for time here, but I just want to say dogs for the fucking win. I'd say they're top three animals on earth of all time humans primates and then dogs fuck all the other animals Liz, can they detect hpv (laughs) (laughs) but if you want to um go volunteer they're definitely i'm sure they'd be happy to work with you (laughs) (laughs) they do sniff crotches (laughs) who we got next jason Responsible for issuing 
tier one adult use cultivation licenses that don't have the 250 plant limit to existing operators under this state medical program. By November 8, 2023, ABC would then issue 12 tier two cultivation facility licenses chosen through a lottery system. No more than 12 tier two licenses could be issued under the constitutional amendment. All tier one and tier two adult use cultivation facilities licenses through the amendment must be located at least 3,000 feet from a public or private school, church, daycare center, or facility for individuals with disabilities that pre-exist the license year. Dispensaries. ABC officials would have to issue adult dispensary licenses to existing medical cannabis retailers, as well as a second dispensary license to those retailers allowing them to open an adult use location within five miles of their existing medical dispensary. Wholesale and retail sales for adult use cannabis by licensed commercial establishments could begin the next day. And by July 5th, 2023, the ABC would then issue 40 additional adult use dispensary licenses. There's more to go on with this. Um, I know that we're getting short on time, but it looks like Arkansas is about to move. And this Bible Belt that we live in, that I live in, um, look, looking to, look, to move and to approve an adult use amendment for the state. I'm Roz McCarthy, signing off for the State of Cannabis News Hour. We'd love to hear your thoughts. There's a lot of interesting stuff going down in uh, down in Arkansas, man. I will be watching that one very, very, very closely. Is that's the deep, deep, deep south? Uh, well, it's, I mean, the limitations that they have, and they don't have. If you notice, there's no talk about social equity. There's a whole bunch of poor people that have been to jail for this plant in Arkansas. So we're all over this. Not to mention, too, it's also the home of the number one prohibitionist in the Senate, Tom Cotton. I thought you were going to say, uh, Mr. I do not inhale <laughs> your boy, Billy C. No, he's not even relevant in this story. Say it's, it's, it's the home of, uh, uh, Bill it's a home of lots of people. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. They got a big population in Arkansas. I did not know that. Just news <laughs> to me. Are you just saying that because you're Jason Beck and you, you, you know, and, and, just don't want people to challenge you either way that was a great show <laughs> if, if you guys missed it you can catch it anywhere that you get your podcast please subscribe and leave us a review big thank you to all of the correspondents that come through all of the headlines each day and bring us just what we need to know um top of the hour we will be running with uh um, shalina panu's story tomorrow that we missed off today if you guys have tips any news any requests any critique please send them our way uh, we will be launching our discord hopefully by tomorrow so we can get that up and we can unify clubhouse and twitter spaces and we can have one place to just get together and talk weed any closing remarks from you jason hope you all have an amazing day and don't forget it's talk about it tuesday yes it is remember to talk about it and throw a little spice on that ass let's get it out You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. <laughs> so that's one. Goodbye. Say goodbye,